2: Hi. Hello.
3: Welcome back to Old Millennials, a deep dive on shallow topics from the 90s and
2: 2000s. I am one of your hosts,
3: Emily Beijing,
2: And I'm your other host, Margot Poupard.
3: Sometimes an existential crisis knocks on our door, and we are left to ponder some of life's most difficult questions. What happens when we die? What will our legacies be? And where in the world is Carmen (laughs) Sandiego?
2: It's right up there with life's deep questions and quandaries. We Truly. Never, did we ever find out?
3: No, the I mean she it's not so much where, but when. It's all of them really. We don't know when in the world, where in the world. She's just she's a constant press she's omnipresent, I guess, is what we can I feel like I'm talking about like God or something. I was about to say, I'm
2: like, are you saying that Carmen San Diego is Jesus? <laughs>
3: potentially potentially yeah.
2: <laughs> some sort of minor god <laughs> a deity or major i li- i mean her style am i right <laughs> uh yeah still killer to this day uh, major serve that yellow made, trench coat and giant red hat i
3: mean just like she served a yellow trench coat she served a red trench coat she served every color trench coat under the sun
2: she also uh, serves side profile Barbie hoops. Yes. You know, like uh, we only yes. really ever saw her from the side. I am, I, I'm realizing, and, I, and she does a fedora
3: like no other. I mean, I, I mean, gotta say,
2: a fedora is it because it has a feather? Because there's a little jaunty plume. Um, yeah, it's more it, like wide. It really looks like a wide sheep. brim. Yes, yeah, it's like it's a very wider French, brim, if you don't mind me saying.
3: I mean, you know? she may, she may be. Latina according to
2: Well, her style is European. Yes. I'm not. I'm not yes. commenting on her ethnicity. Just her. Yes. Her overall style sense. Yes, I agree. I agree. It is very European.
3: Um, she does rock a red lip. That's for sure. I mean, uh, she's got to have like a capsule
2: collection situation
3: going. Oh, on her absolutely. Wardrobe, I mean, a right? woman like, on the go. A woman on the go. <laughs> she has to live in a tiny. I mean, she was using the away suitcase probably before away even was a concept. You know, she had to to get what's, away so quickly. What's Shea Mitchell? Uh, uh luggage brand oh, like God. beige yeah. or something something like that
2: <laughs> yeah Marion brought imagine? that weekender bag to my birthday and i've been thinking about it ever since but i don't need it but i want it i know that's i bought
3: problem. a I bought a weekender recently uh from calpac and i've been a big fan because it has a compartment that lets me slide it on my suitcase handle so yeah.
2: I thought you are gonna say shoes because that's what that's really what i need and oh it has like a shoe compartment dog.
3: too yes, which is that. great Yeah, yeah yeah big fan um but back to the. i sure Carmen
2: San Diego knows all about weekender bags and that ease of does. sliding it on I mean, your carry lit. on and Ooh. and shoe compartments. The importance of separating your shoes and possibly like a little hat box. You have to have a hat box at the. You like that. you know I bet you if there
3: is a luggage or bag company listening to us right now, I feel like they are missing out on a partnership opportunity with Mattel, who I believe is the current owner of the Carmen San Diego IP. Uh, that they there is a partnership opportunity that i'm sure people would jump the shit on like you know london fog does a carmen san diego trench coat away or <laughs> or whomever does a luggage collaboration like hear me out like this is what millennials are craving this week as you can tell we are talking about the computer game, TV shows and book series that basically coined the term edutainment and launched a lot of people's interests in geography, Model UN and I'd argue true crime, even if the crimes here are fictional and somehow it's the ACME agency tasked with solving them rather than Interpol. Like, let's be honest, this should be an Interpol issue. It shouldn't be some San Francisco true crime agency or crime agency like working on this,
2: right? A hard-boiled film noir knockoff agency. Yeah, I mean, I had the same comment in my notes is like, did this start this entire trend of like true crime podcast? Because we all think that we're gumshoes on this Reddit thread. And yes. it doesn't help that in current in the current season of Yellow Jackets. Yeah, Elijah Wood keeps referring to himself and what he does as a as gumshoe work. And I, so it kind of all comes full
3: circle today. 100%. I blame Carmen Sandiego and I blame Ghostwriter.
2: Yes, Ghostwriter iconic
3: 90s tv show that we'll need to talk about at one point. Agreed. Um but before we get into it, it sounds like we both have a lot of f- thoughts and feelings about Carmen San Diego. So Margo, I now ask you, what is your relationship to Carmen
2: San Diego? Um I was obsessed with the show. They had she also like was queen of the Scholastic Book Fair. They had
3: uh I'll get uh into it
2: later. But there are a couple like um, Carmen Sandiego, like adventure geography books that I really liked. And like I told you before we started recording, I'm sure at some point this this series, this game show. I also played the video game as well. I had the whole suite of Carmen San Diego products because edutainment is correct. And it might at one time have helped me with geography. Although I will say in rewatching some of the old game show episodes, I like, rem- I remembered the answer from <laughs> like, I had a flashback to watching it and being like, oh, I think the answer is Uruguay. And it, it was not right. But I <laughs> remembered some <laughs> stuff from watching this show because it is just... What a hilarious set, but it, it might have helped me with geography, but I don't remember anything from it really, or at least it didn't really stick with me. But it was like the Duolingo, but less annoying of its time, but with way more, you know, for lack of a better term, verticals dedicated to it. And it really is impressive the hold that it had on people, especially the amount of spinoffs that it had in like the book, video game and game show department. What did you how did you come to where in the world?
3: I mean our my first yeah, our, my first introduction is obviously gonna be the PBS game show. Mm-hmm. Um that was with the Rockapella theme song. Um which, Please, no spoilers. <laughs> I know. I won't I won't go into it more. I'll talk more about that later because I interviewed one of their members at one point. Um No, but- why? What? <laughs> because we sang in a cappella groups for 10 plus years, Margo. That's oh my God, why. The
2: cross. I forget you're like one degree away from Keith Raniere and somehow John Wilson. <laughs>
3: so i uh so for me i of course get introduced to this all through like the pbs show and then my sister and i had at least one of the g- computer games i think we had where in the usa and maybe where in the world but definitely like the 90s version and not like the original 80s uh cd oh, sure. you know yeah but uh and it was on a cd-rom um <laughs> And I had quite a few of the books as well, if I recall correctly. So um, I was very ingrained into the Carmen Sandiego uh, cinematic universe. I uh, was there was also the show Where in Time was another spinoff. And I won't go into more because this is your domain, but I'll talk about it later. But I watched a lot of the TV show spinoffs and. I think geography, as I was saying before we started recording, was a bigger, was a big deal in my house because my mom worked in international affairs. And so my mom traveled to a lot of countries when I was a kid for work. And I, she always like would quiz us on capitals of the world. So this brings back a lot of those memories Um, and not feeling smart for not remembering the cap, you know, the the capital of some sub-Saharan African nation at the age of like six years old. So, uh, And
2: which river runs through it. (laughs) Yes,
3: exactly. Uh, But this is, for me, you know, it brings back a lot of big, like important memories. And it is to this day, you know, something that I I pride myself on for being kind of able to do some half-assed geography when it comes to a pub bar trivia night, which we were also just talking about.
2: I was going to say, it, it. this really left it, um, a mark and it has a ripple effect among, like, millennials and maybe, like, older Gen Z of being obsessed with trivia, yes. true crime, scammers, <laughs> crooks. Yes, crooks. Yeah, female <laughs> grifters pop off <laughs> I mean, really, it all goes back to where in the world is Cameron San Diego. It's because we never found her. That's why we never we're, we're still her. searching. We are still
3: searching. Um, So at this point, I feel like it makes sense for me to go into the origins, the 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 origin story, if you will. Sure, because it all starts with the video game, right? It does. It really does. And before we get into that game, we have to talk a little bit about edutainment. Um, oh, please. So the concept of edutainment or educational entertainment, if you are living under a rock, has been around for many years, but it was really popularized in the mid 1950s when Walt Disney was describing a lot of the educational content that Disney was putting out, such as the shows like Real World Adventures, the Disneyland specials, the cartoons that they made in conjunction with the U.S. government during World War II. It was just Disney had a lot of Partnerships in terms of you know educating the masses, but mostly children about various things. And I have a little note on this. Um, when I was a little kid, speaking of that World War II partnership with the U.S. government, I found a video cassette, a taped video cassette, in my parents' like in our video cabinet or shelf or whatever that had the words Donald Duck on it, and got very excited. And when I popped this video. Into our VCR, Margot, it was actually a World War II propaganda cartoon featuring Donald Duck where he was being encouraged to save his money and invest in war bonds versus spending them. And the guy, like the swindler duck who's trying to get him to spend it on life's pleasures, turns into a Nazi. Talk about family
2: fun. (laughs) Yikes.
3: Still with me this many years later.
2: (laughs) That does sound familiar.
3: It, I mean, this happened a lot with Disney. They, they, they collaborated with a lot of government, like government agencies, companies, like it was, you know, to, to educate people, to sell things. Like they did a lot of advertisement for companies, things that they don't quite do anymore. Cause it's like a considered like a taint to the Disney brand. That was a big part of, of what they did, but Back to edutainment, Uh, the term is credited to Robert Heyman in the early 70s, who coined it while making documentaries for the National Geographic Society. And it's around this time that public television becomes a place where kids are watching shows like Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and Saturday morning cartoon blocks are starting to show schoolhouse rock segments. The 70s are when some people are also starting to get into computers, and there are computer games that emerge. And this includes... It's the text-based game, Colossal Cave Adventure. Have you ever heard of this game, Margot?
2: Mm, I don't think so.
3: When I start talking about it, it'll sound familiar because there were a lot of games like this for a very long time, and they were very text-based. So, because computer graphics were nowhere near where they are today, um, and even in the seventies, the between you know the seventies and eighties, there was a lot of evolution a lot of games are really text heavy. And so you were asked a series of questions by text on the computer screen and you could make decisions by typing certain commands or certain passwords that were supposed to be a synonym to the word that was a clue or something like that. And the computer would process your command and the next part of the game and subsequent text you'd see on the screen would be impacted based on that command, sort of a
2: choose-your-own-adventure by the answer you chose. Oh, and- wait. Uh, they did cover this a little bit on Halt and Catch Fire.
3: Totally. Like, that was a very big deal back then, and it became – it was still a very popular medium well into the 80s and even 90s. I mean, this was chat GPT in 1977. Um <laughs> This gave way to a lot of other text-driven computer games and was a major influence on role-player games, notably Dungeons & Dragons, which came out a little bit earlier in the decade but continued to be influenced by these types of games, especially I believe there was like an online Dungeons & Dragons computer game you could play. Three years later, it's 1980, and brothers Gary and Doug Carlston founded a software company called Broderbund Software in Eugene, Oregon, which they move a few years later to San Rafael, California. In Marin County, and despite it sounding vaguely Scandinavian, <laughs> Broderbund or Bruderbund, as they originally pronounced it, but over time, like no one pronounced it that way, doesn't actually really mean anything. It's kind of a loose translation of "band of brothers" in Swedish, Danish, Dutch, and German. And the logo featured three crowns, which made up the Swedish coat of arms. And you may remember there was a slash in the O in the logo, which is a letter in the Swedish alphabet but is also a reference to the Slash Zero found in mainframes and earlier personal computers. Okay, nerds. The Carlston brothers started the company because Doug, then a young lawyer who had graduated from Harvard Law School in 1975, had created a strategy game called Galactic Empire. Fun fact, a lot of the names in that game were taken from Afrikaans words because Doug had spent time in South Africa, and the original spelling of Broderbund was taken from the Afrikaans spelling But the Carlstons had to change it because they later learned it was also the name of a white Afrikan nationalist group in South Africa that helped keep apartheid going, which yikes. What Uh, are the fucking odds? I mean, like this is 19th. You could not simply Google these things
2: back then. And I just like, yes. (laughs) They could have just gone, you know, a completely less complicated route as well. That was also an option
3: that was totally an option but not you know these men wanted something exotic sounding ish mm-hmm. so for the first few years broderbund pivoted to arcade games because they were waking, making way more money than with strategy games and they're pretty successful in that space but their real money maker comes in 1984 when they developed the print shop software do you remember this when you were a kid it was <laughs> so. It's a program that had a lot of clip art and template options that you could use to make cards and signs, and you would probably print these out on the continuous form paper, which kids Ooh. these days will with never the understand with the perforated yes. edges.
2: Yeah, Correct. was it something that came with your computer?
3: Yes. Oftentimes it would come with computers. It was a very popular thing. Um, and I feel like, I don't know, I didn't look into this, but there was like a kid friendly version in the nineties called kid picks that my friend had. That was very, Oh, that I
2: definitely remember.
3: Yeah. My friend definitely had that. And so very similarly, you could, you know, add clip art to things, print it out. It would take 30 minutes to print, but you know,
2: uh, be sopping wet,
3: (laughs) sopping wet in black and white ink, like just (laughs) graphics, baby. Yep. Uh, So the print shop would sell 1 million copies by 1988, comprised 4% of the 1987 software sales market in the US. But let's go back to 1983. And a programmer at Broderbund by the name of Dane Bigum was working, trying to develop an adventure strategy game similar to Colossal Cave Adventure, but with better graphics since they were now... Uh, in a world where personal computers were on the market and people were buying computers like the Apple II, for example. I found a Kotaku article about Carmen Sandiego, which has excerpts from the book titled Breakout, How the Apple II Launched the PC Gaming Revolution by David L. Craddock. So Bigum says in this book, quote, one thing I'd always wanted to do and I'd even worked on a little bit in the past was trying to make adventure games more approachable. One of the problems with Colossal Cave Adventure and other adventure games in the past were they were super text centric. So you had to essentially page through a thesaurus to find the answer to type into the game. You couldn't just like pick from an option. The problem was due to memory constraints, the thesaurus was really limited and it made a clunky user experience. And that made it very difficult for any anyone to play the game, let alone children. And so Bigham decided he wanted to design a game that could use menus for options to select from um, in terms of what your, you know, next choice would be, versus having to type in a text command. So it made it very approachable for kids. He then got to putting together a few sample rooms of what this game could look like from a outline perspective and map them out with characters, treasure, and other items. And he brought those ideas to artists Gene Portwood and Lauren Elliott, whose office they shared was known as the rubber room. And it was like, I saw a picture of it. They had, like, masks everywhere. It's very much, like, what you expect from an art department at a, you know, video game or computer game company in the 1980s. Portwood, like you, Margot, grew up in Burbank and had gotten his start working at Disney, where he helped draw scenes for the Lady and the Tramp, Sleeping Beauty, and the Jiminy Cricket segments you'd see when Disney did TV. Lauren Elliott, who is the grandnephew, who is actually a man, who is the grandnephew of Eleanor Roosevelt basically got hired at Broderbund in 1983 with a sketchbook of game ideas and basically convinced the powers that be that he could convince a programmer to work on one of his ideas – this is how one got a job in 1983 at a tech company. Certainly uh, How not. a man got a job. A
2: white man got a job. And how most men still currently still get it. jobs. <laughs> With a sketchbook and a dream. Uh- how wild to just walk in and demand a job and be like, no, I don't have experience. All I have is this sketchbook. And a smile. <laughs> I don't, I'm sure the smile is not really even a smile. I just. just <laughs> a sketchbook. Just Hopefully, a pants.
3: Hopefully pants. Hopefully pants. <laughs> so back to the rubber room, Bigum pitched this game to Portwood and Elliot as a cops and robbers style game with the goal to catch multiple villains and solve multiple crimes. And Portwood at first was apprehensive. Um, he thought it was just very complicated for someone to, you know, have to focus on catching multiple criminals at a time. Biggum decided to really pare down his ideas and focus on catching one villain Um, at a time and made the game a lot cleaner and kid friendly. Carlston, um, if you might remember one of the founders of Broderbund, was the one who decided to add this geography element to the idea. So growing up, the Carlstons had lived in Germany for a year and traveled all over Europe, which piqued his interest in travel and geography. Bigham didn't like the idea at first. Um, He felt like that was an annoying layer to add to this game and just wanted to focus on programming this menu interface. So the Carlstons... Instead of, you know, he just wants to work on that project. So the Carlstons, to get this geography element added to the game, they go out and they find David Siefkin, and I think that's how it's pronounced, whose wife was teaching a cooking class at Berkeley. Um, that one of the Broderbund employees was taking. So when Siefkin joined this project, he was informed that they wanted to develop this geography-based kids game and that the game would be packaged with the Coffee of the World Almanac, something Carlston had been obsessed with growing up. Like he was a kid who was all about facts. Like I can just imagine this being like the small kid in your neighborhood who's like, did you know blah, 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 blah. And you like are just very annoyed by him. I could be that person growing up. But Siefkin had also played Colossal Cave Adventure and had been frustrated with its limitations. And he said about creating this geography centric storyline at Strawberry Canyon in the Berkeley campus. So he went to Berkeley right like oh. there at the time. Yeah. So he was hanging out by the pool and working on this idea and the concept for what would be this geography angle of where in the world is Carmen San Diego. Have you spent time in Strawberry Canyon?
2: I have. Yeah. Um, I was taken there when I first moved. Well, when it was finally, when it finally stopped raining when I moved here, I went with like a bunch of my roommates and I went back like a handful of times because the weather used to be a little bit more temperamental and you couldn't and you couldn't always count on like super hot days in September, or even like in May when the pool was open and you could like sneak in. So I'd only been like a handful of times. Oh, nice.
3: So he that's where he basically developed a lot of uh Carmen San Diego. So he had spent that's nine so months funny. Oh, yeah. So more oh, popular
2: no. than that is the Strawberry Canyon Hill for skateboarders. Oh, this is good to know. Yes. Um I, I've yes, never if been. You're trying to find your future ex boyfriend, a skater, <laughs> go to Strawberry <laughs> Canyon.
3: Yeah. I uh I mean, I guess there are 30 something skaters out there. <laughs>
2: And those men don't have health insurance, Em.
3: <laughs> no, no. Truly, when Avril Lavigne once sang about a skater boy, that was really just a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that she happened to be with the one who, who got a very successful job with health insurance. <laughs> <laughs> so he spent nine months uh, traveling the world, and that's kind of where his experience came from, knowing you know a lot about geography and wanted to incorporate the trial and error format of Colossal Cave Adventure while giving kids opportunities to learn about countries, languages, currencies and landmarks um, and just kind of overall geography. So the concept was simple, like basically you, the player, would start in a random location and be given a multiple choice question. If you answered correctly, You'd be taken to the next location and provided a clue to help solve the next question. And you could use the almanac to help answer questions. So, or for example, if you were told the next clue could be found in a country where they use the pound as their currency, you could use your almanac to know that you needed to go to the UK. Each game would focus on a different villain picked at random. And after like 10 to 12 clues, you'd apprehend the criminal. As for the name Carmen San Diego, it came from a list that Siefkin had put together of potential names for the villains that could be assigned to you to find. And it came, that name came from the actress Carmen Miranda and Carmen, the name of the St. Bernard dog that belonged to his former roommates in San Francisco, which I thought was very cute. And the last name just came from the city of San Diego, but he changed it to be one word in the game versus two separate San Diego.
2: For Catherine. any particular reason, I—I I honestly, I wouldn't say just noticed, but I re-registered you, the fact that it's San Diego one word. You
3: fully Bernstein bared it because I yes, did. Yes, <laughs>
2: yes, I had a LP from Run the Jewels level meltdown where I was like, has it always been this way? <laughs>
3: No, I truly did as well. Um, And I think it was just so it looked more like a last name, really. uh, Versus the
2: town that they were literally naming her after.
3: Correct. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So Catherine Bird, who is a project manager at Broderbund, really liked that name out of the list. She picked it out and gravitated towards it because it sounded exotic and mysterious. And as Gary Carlston said, quote, we wanted a character that girls could relate to and didn't give much thought to her being a crook. (laughs) He also said this, too, so that he could judge accusations of, like, you know, purposely making this character a certain ethnicity and making her a villain. He said, quote, we came up with a backstory about her maiden name being something Swedish to deflect concern about her
2: being a bad role model for Hispanic girls. (laughs) Wow. Okay. All right. No, no, she's actually just Swedish and bad.
3: (laughs) That being said, it was rare at the time to have a woman, let alone a woman of color, be the main character of a game. So this was, um, you know, I mean, this was a very male dominated, continues to be a male dominated industry. But Carmen ended up becoming the final boss in this game. And the rest of the villains were either anagrams of Broderbund employees like Catherine Dribb was based on Catherine Bird or punny names that you'll get into more of. Like, can you spare a dime? Like, can separate initial U and then spare a dime last name? By the way, Carmen was modeled after Broderbun's head of marketing, Marcia Bell. And uh, obviously the name of the game was called Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego to reflect the final boss uh, that you would face. And so as the production on the game got close to done, Sifkin left the project to actually become a foreign service officer and work in the countries he had written about in the game and was up until 2013, according to his LinkedIn. He, I think, has since retired, uh, but still lives in France, according to LinkedIn, which is cool. Uh, Bigham was growing frustrated and bored with the game because he obviously wasn't interested in the geography angle. And after he finished his work on the game in 1985, he took a leave of absence that summer to go work with Doug Smith on Load Runner. And when he came back, people kept telling him Carmen San Diego was testing well, but he really didn't believe it was going to be a hit. And Carlston was avoiding the educational label and really just wanted to emphasize it being a fun game. And upon its initial release, it wasn't an immediate hit, but it started to gain a lot of traction in the education community. So what ends up happening are these schools decide that they really like the game and it became a way to teach geography to kids and was one of the big programs featured on school computers, despite Rotterbund not marketing it that way at all. And obviously, I'm sure, you know, like growing up, you go into a computer lab in your school and chances are there was a copy of Carmen Sandiego on at least one of those computers.
2: Carmen San Diego, Oregon Trail. Oregon Trail. Mavis Beacon. Mavis Beacon. Top which top uh, three hits in my yes. elementary to middle school computer lab.
3: <laughs> yes, which I believe they actually was developed by Broderbun as well, by the way. Mavis. Mavis Beacon. Beacon. Yes. And I forgot that the so it was uh developed by oh excuse me, the software tool works. So I lied. Uh, but, uh, I figured out that they were referring to a person, like, there's a fictional character on the Yeah, this yeah, box. you didn't know that? Yeah, there's, I didn't like, a lady. That. There's yes. a lady
2: in, like, the little, either the upper, lower hand corner. She's yes. always been there.
3: She's, oh, and so, like, I had never really put two and two together, but now I realize, like, the original title is Mavis Beacon Teaches Typing! Exclamation point. Like, anyway, Fascinating these realizations I have 20, 30 years later.
2: San Diego, uh, one word.
3: <laughs> San Diego, one word. <laughs> so it becomes, Carmen San Diego becomes a huge hit. In fact, it was bun's third best-selling Commodore game in late 1987. In 1989, in April, the game was awarded a diamond certification from the Software Publishers Association for sales above 500,000 units, making it one of the top two best-selling computer games in the U.S. up until June 1989. It went on to achieve sales above 800,000 units by December 1989, which is like, you have to go back here. This is 1989, 1989. In terms of how many Americans have a personal computer, uh, the percentage is very low. For, so, for a company to sell that many units of a, a piece of kids' software is mind boggling. There were obviously many spin offs of the game, including where in the USA is Carmen San Diego, which we had, uh, where in the Europe is Carmen San Diego, where in time is Carmen San Diego, and Where in North Dakota is Carmen San Diego, which was a real thing. And that one, by the way, was developed in part by some educators in North Dakota who wanted to teach their students about state history, which I feel like I would have enjoyed a version of for my own state. But I realized that Virginia is so entwined in like American history that it would have made zero sense. So go North Dakota. (laughs) Um, In the Smithsonian Magazine article, designer Lauren Elliott, one of the two rubber room people I mentioned earlier, said, quote, The beginning Carmen group was only Gene, myself, and the programmer Dane, supported by Gary and Doug. By the time we had finished the fifth or sixth Carmen San Diego game, Broderbund was 200 plus employees, and the Carmen team was easily 30 to 40 people, which meant that the company, like many others, needed to go with known successes. And over time, these folks all got lots of bonuses and royalties from the game, even after several of them had left the company. And over the years, Bigham has grown to accept the game's legacy despite um, resenting it during its development and now realizes how instrumental it was. So a little on where everyone is now, and then we can go into uh, the TV shows and the books. So Broderbund was purchased by The Learning Company in 1998 for $420 million in stock. And this resulted in... Terminating 500 employees, uh, which accounted for 42% of the workforce. And a year later, um, the learning company, along with Broderbund, was acquired by Mattel for $3.6 billion. Uh, CD ROMs were a big deal. And like, we forget how much a part of our childhood they were, but like, we just, that was like computer games. I mean, it still is, I realize now, but like, anyway. As of April 2008, uh, Carlson serves as the chairman of. Uh, the Board of Directors of Public Radio International, PRI, and the Carlston Family Foundation, and serves on the boards of Move On, the Plowshares Fund, the Albanian American Enterprise Fund, and like a lot of other foundations. Um, and in March of 2014, Carlston donated company records, design documents, and games from Broderbund's history to the National Museum of Play. Uh, Dane Bigum went on to be the founder and VP of product design at Presage Software from uh, 1987 to 1997. He was at Forte Systems for 20 years, and most recently, he is currently a director and software of software development engineering at MasterCard. Gene Portwood and Lauren Elliott ended up leaving Broderbund in 1992 to form Elliott Portwood Productions, and one of the
0: Upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
3: The games they produced was The Incredible Adventures of Aristotle MacGuffin, which led children on a 14th century tour of England. And Gene Portwood sadly passed away in the in 60s. And like as I mentioned earlier, David Siefkin left to become a foreign off service officer and still lives in France. And that is the story of the Carmen San Diego game and Broderbund.
2: And now we're going to get into the game show. Where in the world is Car- Carmen Sandiego? Originally aired on PBS and it targeted kids within the 8 to 12 year old age range. It premiered on September 30th in 1991, ending its original run in December of 1995, with reruns continuing to air until May of 1996. Carmen Sandiego produced a total of 295 episodes over five seasons. Oh my God. In that time. I know, more than I thought. And also, I say originally aired because now I believe it's a cartoon series on Netflix. Oh, yes. Yes. With with um, Gina Rodriguez. Oh, yeah. She's the voice of Carmen Sandiego. That track. She is. Mm -hmm. So the game show takes place, so to speak, in a 1920s ish inspired detective office that's part of the ACME Agency. Which has a lot of um, like Archer vibes, like Sterling Cooper kind of situation. It,
3: it truly makes sense, also why I love film noir films. Like, sure. I, this is it. This is part of it too. We should have mentioned that one earlier too. Like, put 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 the film noir buffs in there.
2: The agency is run by Lynn Theegspin Theeg. Thieg's, thieg? who plays the chief and greg lee who plays her special agent and is also the host greg is accompanied by a comedy mime dance troupe and the in-house acapella group rockapella who also (laughs) sing the theme song the contestants aka gumshoes have three rounds to find the criminal of the week leaving only one gumshoe their shot to capture the criminal mastermind that is carmen san diego so round one is typically like geography based q a then after this round Someone gets eliminated and then two gumshoes go on to the next round. Then round two is the remaining two have to find the loot, the warrant and the crook of the week in that order on a giant memory cardboard looking game board. And then the final round, the the gumshoe who wins goes to shoot their shot and capture Carmen Sandiego or at least attempt to. The final round is always the toughest because Greg will just yell out names of places from around the world and the remaining gumshoe has 45 seconds to put these little traffic cone lights in the correct area of the giant map. i tell you. Oh, was it stressful? When you're like, this is the source of all of my anxiety. Like, this is is the origin story. (laughs) It is this. It is Legends of the Hidden Temple and the
3: the Temple Guards. And it is Double Dare. Like, it is (laughs) everything we've talked about on this
2: podcast, I might Mm -hmm. add. But yes. Yes, yes, go on. Sorry. No, no, no. I I mean, just rewatching the part where they run around that giant map. I'm like, come on, get it. Where's Mogadishu? Like, figure it out. If the gumshoe is successful, they would win a trip to anywhere in the contiguous United States. They always said it like this, or at least for several seasons. And the show was partially in response to a National Geographic survey that indicated that Americans had an alarmingly small knowledge of geography, with one in four being able to locate the Soviet Union or the Pacific Ocean, which I could find those two guys. Don't worry. We're all safe. (laughs) The show's questions were verified by National Geographic World, which I believe in the first two or three seasons they shouted out and then less so as time went on. But they also helped provide the prizes to the contestants in the form of subscriptions to their magazines. I was going to say, I remember that vividly. Yeah. Some of the prizes as like the contestants get eliminated. You're like, I wouldn't want that magazine. <laughs> like, no, some of them were cool, like National Geographic. Great. But then they had these like little spin-off ones that felt like, you know, when you used to like order magazine subscriptions, They're like you need to hit the, the the minimum of four. And you're like, fine, fuck it. Give me like Pictionary magazine or oh whatever. God. Yeah. Just, mm-hmm. like, the way magazine subscriptions
3: ruled fundraisers, uh, so many other things growing up. Like, you just, you didn't get just one. You got, like, seven.
2: The MLM of our time. <laughs> Truly. We're in the world as Carmen Sandiego won seven Daytime Emmys and the 1992 Peabody Award. And in 2001, TV Guide, R.I.P., ranked the show number 47 on its list of 50 greatest game shows of all time. So in the production, if we, you know, that's the overview if we zoom in punch in a little bit in order to pull off the show 150 people worked on it with each season shooting uh over six weeks of time and they would shoot about three to four episodes at a time in the same studio because you know the set's already there but because of where they were they geographically speaking to tie it back to the show the they only casted kids that were you know from the age range that they were um making the show for, so between 8 and 13, but they only picked from New York schools. And in order to even get on the show, the kids would have to pass a geography test. And if they passed the test, then they would then meet with the producers and have an interview. And then after that, we'll see if you make the show. The main theme song is written by Rockapella co-founders Sean Altman and David Yezbek, And they, it appears on the 1992 soundtrack, Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego, and in the compilation of television's greatest hits, Volume 7, Cable Ready.
3: I mean, it's still a very catchy song. I I tell you, I tried listening to it yesterday and as cringy as I realize acapella is for many people, it's, uh, I I will say this is embarrassing. I think this might be the first time I ever heard an acapella group.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's very catchy and they wrote it and it's original and, you know. Yeah, that's what the kids want, an in-house acapella band on their game show. But, I, but I have a whole separate breakout section for these oh, perfect. guys. Perfect. Uh, graphic designer Gene Mackles had to produce about two hours of animation. So everything from Carmen herself to like the map in the opening credits, that the song plays over on a very tight deadline. And of course, on a tight budget. Wouldn't you know it? For his efforts, Mackle and Chris Pullum, P- Pullman, excuse me, who was his... Uh, Co-graphic designer in this endeavor, won a daytime Emmy. All of the animated characters and elements that you see on the show were created on a Mac. Miss miss me with all of your PC apologist nonsense. Max reign supreme. The players of this game. So obviously, we talked a little bit about the chief played by Lynn Thigpen, who was in Tootsie, The Warriors Lean On Me, and she was in a lot of uh, she was in one daytime soap. I believe it was days of our lives. She was just a legendary actress of uh, stage was- and screen. Yeah, I was about to say she's a big theater actress. Yeah, that's where she got her start. And then, you know, like I said, I love Tootsie, so I'm impartial to be putting that on there. (laughs) But she plays the head of this Acme crime net. And her character actually just became so popular for her hard-boiled puns and actually just being like the most likable adult in the room that she reprised her role in the later editions of the PC game. And then in the subsequent TV series, Where in Time is Carmen Sandiego? Rockapella, a real-life New York City a cappella group, served as the house band and as like a comic foil to Greg. During their series run, their lineup included Scott Leonard, who was the high tenor, Sean Altman, the tenor, Elliot Kerman, the baritone, Barry Carl, the bass, and for season five only for vocal percussion, Jeff Thatcher. But the only thing I want to know is... Who is the man who has a mullet where the bottom half of his mullet oh is dyed bleach blonde, tiny braids with little beads at the end Let's... as if he is at a sandals resort? I screamed, Emily. I screamed. I, screamed I was so too. upset by this man. I and by the, I was so troubled by all of their hair for different reasons. But in the most, kids don't need to be exposed to that. I,
3: I can tell you right now, Margot, as someone who spent many years singing in various acapella concerts and singing with different Groups of different levels of professionalism, there is a certain point in acapella in which an adult kind of starts to wear some weird things. Like, I'm just going to put it out there. Like, I didn't go that path, but some people do. And people make choices. They make choices in the forms of fedoras, snakeskin boots, and not in a cool way, (laughs) and various colored hair, blazers, I I tell you Marco the things I saw corsets like there are just things that people in a cappella groups who are of a certain age start doing and it's like is this a cappella group or is this the scariest midlife crisis I've ever witnessed I don't know It's probably the um, second one I would the second <laughs> I mean, one
2: Yeah I I cannot believe the things I've seen. But honestly, also, I think about it and I just go, oh, yeah, Keith Reneary. So I'm not really yeah. like totally surprised. Or I, I shouldn't yes. be. I will say I interviewed
3: Barry Carl via email like 10 years ago for a acapella festival I was helping run social media for. And he was a very nice man via email. So thank you for the interview, Barry Carl.
2: And he was not the one with the bleach
3: braided No, millet. he's the okay.
2: base. Yeah, oh, yeah. The- oh, he's the guy that looks like Funkhauser RIP. Yes, he <laughs>
3: does look like Funkhauser RIP. Yeah. Like that guy.
2: <laughs> yeah, okay. He's the most he's he's the most harmless one of the group, but yes. I mean also their wardrobe Oh, it was jewel like a jewel tone
3: up uh, like play school like with a play school. Oh, it was like,
2: very what in the community theater streetcar oh, name yeah. desire is this happening? Yeah,
3: there's just that whole set, and it worked for public television for a kids show. But sure, and it there looked a time lot budge of,
2: for PBS there, kids TV. Yes. I would say that because the the set was really fun and engaging. If you're a kid I and you're know. looking at it, yes, it's got a lot of. I, do dads and who's he what's it and etc. I truly I think
3: when you are working with that little of a budget, you have to peacock somewhere. And for them, it was wearing a lot of a lot of adults wearing yellow who should have never been wearing yellow.
2: And gold chains.
3: Yes. Like this so is not many. gangs of New
2: York. I need you so to relax. Many.
3: I, and i yeah, and and the mullet braids to me i don't know oh. if it it's just it's like part cultural appropriation part yes. like just just part and 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 a hate crime not just to certain <laughs> ethnicities but really to everyone as a whole that someone had to feast their eyes on this and thought that's the style i'm going with
2: i want to perform a citizens arrest on that man's hair and i don't think i will be free of Flashing on the image of his bleached braided vacation co- co-opting braids for quite some time. You if know? I wake up in the middle of the night in a sweat, I'm calling you. <laughs> and we and I won't. I don't even need you to explain. I know it's the braids. But somehow, against all odds, they also managed to perform the think music that they played or sang better yet uh, during the wager period of the first round and also in the section where the winner writes down where they want to go if they capture Carmen Sandiego. They also sometimes provide like a little funny sound effects when they do the the loot, the crook and the warrant part of the game as well um as well as the 45 second bonus round so when they're running around the map like they're doing live in real time singing but what is this game without Carmen San Diego's rogues galleries of crooks and scammers which are helpfully called vile v i l e Carmen Sandiego is obviously the master thief, criminal mastermind, and the leader of Vile. In the show's phone tap segments, where it's like two little animations, it's Carmen Sandiego and the crook of the week talking on the phone with like a little lightning bolt. During these segments, she can be heard talking about the episode's crook and talking to them, giving them advice about where to go, with the ultimate goal to just capture Carmen after the crook is caught. There's a Vic the Slick A tackless salesman who wears a polyester suit. He also has a mustache. He's a worm with a mustache. If you know, you know. Shifty eyes and slick back hair. I'm so sorry to make my second Sandoval reference in this episode, but you know what? It's Vanderpump finale (laughs) night, baby. Is it it
3: Tom Sandoval or is it a Carmen Sandiego villain? Or is it
2: Vic the Slick? (laughs) Who can say? Have they ever been seen in the same room at the same time? I don't think so. Then we have the Contessa, a so-called criminal of style who fancies herself to be near royalty. Then we have my personal—oh, this pers- is <laughs> what? This is Anna Delvey, right? Like this yeah. is Anna Delvey. <laughs> <laughs> exactly yes, yes. Then we have Top Grunge, my personal favorite. He- he's a burly and unkempt biker who is always riding around on his chopper, dirty and surrounded by flies with his pig pen vibes. He continually sneezes, snorts, and coughs during conversations, which is like rude he could just have allergies we don't know <laughs> then we have earth the brute a muscular yet dim-witted woman which okay we have robocook robo crook unit 059 a cyborg spoof of robocop then we have my another personal fave patty larceny a flighty blonde with a sweet and giggly personality her name is on the phrase petty larceny
3: this is a perfect drag driver's name
2: and and i know there is a petty larceny drag queen out there somewhere then we have double trouble a pair of yin and yang party boy twins which which is very funny to me it's giving um ambiguously gay duo with a with a quarter moon shaped head they speak in a voice similar to jack nicholson then we have Nimoy, who was introduced in season two, which is a shape, so, shape-shifting shape alien from the planet Roddenberry, and her name is a reference to Leonard Nimoy, a.k.a. Spock of Star Trek and her home planet, Aww. is a nod to the franchise creator Gene Roddenberry. We also have Wonder Rat, also introduced in Season 2, a superhero parody that wears a makeshift rat costume. And finally, we have Serenade, introduced in Season 3, who is a loud, obnoxious teen punk rocker with rainbow-colored hair, and her name is a pun on the word, you guessed it, Serenade. It's <laughs> amazing. To be in the writer's room. hmm Coming up with Serenade and petty larceny. <laughs> so the game... Itself in each episode it consists of three kid contestants that are competing against each other by answering answering geography related trivia questions to determine the location of one of Carmen San Diego's cronies and eventually Carmen herself throughout the show the contestants are referred to as gumshoes and we wonder why we have a whole generation worth of true crime enthusiasts so in round one after we are introduced to our gu- gumshoes, which at the top of the show, they get a little name card, first, last name, some of their like what they like and like where they like to travel. Then we get Chief. She gives gives us a debrief on the crime and the crook who committed it and why. Then the gumshoes begin the show with 50 Acme crime bucks. Um, And then they get uh, more clues and geographical locations of today's crook. Then they are shown a map with three possible locations on the screen, and Greg reminds them of the clues, and each gumshoe has to answer. For each correct answer, a gumshoe earns 10 crime bucks, but there is no penalty for a wrong guess. Some of the various elements from the first round can include the lightning round, which way through round one, a thunderclap sound effect is played to signal that there is a lightning round. So three toss-up questions are asked. All are multiple choice related to the area in the previous question. And then the, for each answer the gumshoe gets right, they earn five crime bucks. Then we get the chief's office. Typically after a lightning round, chief will call in Greg for a debrief conference. Sometimes it's used as a comedy break, but usually it's brought to a close by either announcing the show's grand prize, a trip to anywhere in the contiguous United States to the gumshoe who captures Carmen San Diego. And in later seasons, there was a, um, an aspect of it that included the viewer at home where they could answer certain questions and then mail their envelope back to win a Carmen San Diego T-shirt. Then the chase that would start at the this happened in the beginning of season two. But the chase in general was to sort of speed up the questioning. So it'd be a little bit like a lightning round. But, you know, you're following the crook a little bit more cl- closely. So Greg asks five toss up questions, which provides more cl- and then provides more clues about locations that follow a path in a specific region, indicating that the gumshoes are you know hot on the trail, so to speak. So for each correct answer, they earn five crime bucks. And sometimes there is an interlude segment with the Rockapella group where they either comically run across the stage or they sing a song that's full of clues. And then at the end of the first round, we get the final clue. Greg shows the gumshoes a map of three locations where the crook may have traveled. Before the clues are given, though, Greg gives them a few seconds while the Rockapella group sings, think music, to wager up to 50 of their crime bucks that they have banked. So in increments of 10, or they could risk nothing, they have to say, I want to wager 10, 20, 30, etc., and then give their answer. And when the final clue is given, the gumshoes are allowed to pick and set aside their answer, and then starting with the lowest scoring gumshoe, each reveal their wager and then their answer. Their wager is either added or deducted from their score. Obviously, if they answer correctly, it's added, incorrect, deducted. And at the end of the round, the lowest scoring gumshoe receives a consolation prize, all of those National Geographic magazines we talked about, and a globe ball from the chief, uh, and they're eliminated from the game. Then in round two, we have the jail time challenge. So the remaining gumshoes follow the crook to their next destination. So they leave where they were initially answering the Geography Q&A. And they go to their next quote unquote destination, which is the place that they just correctly wagered all of their crime net points on. So Chief debriefs them. Okay, so they are introduced to a large game board. Each piece has a is labeled with either like a different landmark or a different part of town. And behind each of these is the three pieces of the day's stolen loot and arrest warrant for the crook, and then the crook, him or herself. And behind them are just behind the rest of the pieces on the game board are just shoe prints. So the gumshoes then take alternating turns until one of them finds one or all three of the key items, but they must be in a required order. So it has to be first the loot, which is the evidence required for the warrant, which then leads to the warrant, and then they need the warrant to arrest the crook. So it needs to be loot, warrant, crook. So, finding either finding any of these separately, the Gumshoe will then have another turn. But if one of these that was found in the incorrect order, so say they find the loot and then they find the crook, and then on their third guess they don't find anything, the next kid contestant can come in and spoil the whole thing. Like I just watched on this most recent episode, this poor girl Tammy did the did all of the work of finding the loot and the crook, but didn't have the warrant. And on the second, re- she lost on the third try. It kicked over. it named Joshua and he nailed it in one. So it, you can get so close and then just lose it all. Just have it. But once and- you lose and you get in the correct order, the gumshoe then gets like a bunch of confetti. And then they go and pull a chain on a rope that then activates a fog horn, which indicates that the, the crook is arrested. Oh, yeah, they're like, 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 Serene is in
3: jail. It's like the Rockefeller, yeah. But
2: but then there's also a, like, it's very, um, yeah, it's, it's very like a loud, obnoxious buzzer sound. Anyway, a consolation prize is given to the runner up. It's announced by the chief. And then Greg reminds the winning gumshoe of the grand prize and then takes them on to the bonus round, which is called Carmen's Map World. Greg gives them a portfolio to secretly write down what their chosen destination is if they win the grand prize in the bonus round. And the last gumshoe then receives a phone call from the apprehended crook, who then instructs them to look for Carmen on a certain continent, whether it be Asia, Africa, Europe, South America, you get the idea. Chief then gives them a list of 13 locations on the chosen continent. And then Greg and the gumshoe move to this giant map that covers the entire floor in front of the audience. The map has small red circles that are supposed to note like the cities of the countries or states. And to capture Carmen, the gumshoe has to identify seven, seven to eight different locations because it increased to eight as time went on uh, on the map in 45 seconds or less. Each time grabbing this large marker that has a police beacon mounted on it so it looks like uh, when a cop has its lights on, mounted on oh, the top yeah. of it. Oh, yeah. And they must quickly place the marker on one of the red spots on the map. If they correctly identify the location, the beacon buzzer marker, the beacon buzzer flashes and a police siren sounds while an incorrect buzz is noted with an uh uh-oh buzzer noise. But after one incorrect guess per location, um, the second incorrect guess, you're forced to just leave the marker behind and go on to the next location, which I think marks against you. What made the round challenging was that the map was actually upside down from the Gumshoe's perspective. So if the Gumshoe succeeds, they win the grand prize of their trip and Greg re- reveals a location that the Gumshoe wrote down. If the Gumshoe fails to capture Carmen, they receive a consolation prize, but the trip destination is not revealed, which is very unsatisfying. But regardless of the result, the chief promotes the Gumshoe to sleuth with her congratulations and that is the end of the gameplay. I feel like you were trying to say something. Oh
3: yeah, I was just thinking like we break it down, 45 seconds. You, you that, That's about, you've got a little over five seconds. If we're talking eight places, you've got a little over five seconds to figure out each location. And I like, oh my God, you are, you, there's no way. There's like, it, it. people defy the odds. I mean, even seven would be hard enough. Like, oh my God.
2: Uh, yeah. I was shocked that they pushed it up to eight. I was like, that's just mean. These kids are like winded and lost. <laughs>
3: Probably dehydrated.
2: Exactly. And Greg's just yelling shit, being a total Greg about it. Fucking Greg. But let's move on to the books and comics, which, you know, for me is just going to be like kind of a a list of books that you may or may not remember. And an occasional board and or card game. So the one you might be most familiar with is the John Peel series of books. The Carmen San Diego franchise was so popular between the video game and the show, they gave Sharon Sha- Shavers the distinct honor of turning the game into a series of books. She turned around and hired John Peel, who did his research by playing all of the games, which gave them the idea of how to structure the book series. His premise is it's each book is a choose your own adventure and that you are the detective, and this is the adventure you get to go on. And each title features four exciting detective adventure tales inside. The books are written in the second person and in a present tense, and they have a removable insert that provides clues and the identities of villains, and the books were published by a Canadian branch of Golden Books Publishing. The artwork was done by Alan Neuwirth. Peel wrote 16 new cases in the original four-book series, and the books all came with the cards which are very, very important to solving the cases. So we have: Where in the world is Carmen Sandiego in 1991? Also in 91, where in the USA? Where in Europe? Where in time? And then in 19- 1992, we go to where in America's past is Carmen Sandiego? In 93, where in time is Carmen Sandiego Part Two? Also in 93, where in space is Carmen Sandiego? Like this bitch is like the Fast and the Franchise series. Like we just shot her ass up in space spoiler alert she's showing up in fast 10 oh my god i hope so that'd be great is she working with jason momoa (laughs) (laughs) i hope that'd be great if they were like the big bads um uh, 1994 where in the usa is carmen san diego part two in 1993 though they finally had a where in the world is carmen san diego calendar which sounds like a good time There was also a Carmen Sandiego mystery series in 1997 that was like a junior level reading of novels. And it was written by various authors, but all of them were illustrated by S.M. Taggart. Each book in the series was a subtitled A Carmen Sandiego Mystery, colon, and featured kid detectives Ben and Maya as the protagonists. Six books were released. There were Call Me Criminal. Hasta la vista. One T Rex over easy. The Coco commotion. Take the mummy and run. High and highway robbery. There was also a comic book series from mid 1996 to like early 1997. They made four comic books that were published by DC in a series called "Where in the World is Carmen San Diego?" Uh, very inspired, uh, and they involved the exploits of Evan Sawyer, quote, Acme Detective Agency's newest and youngest gumshoe. They had issues between June of 1996 through January of 1997, and in the sort of like maybe you saw this at the Scholastic Book Fair kind of catch-all category, there was the official Carmen Sandiego clue book, Carmen Sandiego mystery novels, Carmen Sandiego travel activity books, which I had a bunch of, and a bi-monthly Carmen Sandiego comic strip that was in the National Geographic Society World magazine. They also made a couple board games. They were made by University Games, and they had at least one card game, too, and they were all based on Carmen San Diego, and they were released at various times throughout the 90s. To promote the first board game, though, they made a special offer around Christmas where any person who bought a Carmen San Diego video game would also get the board game, probably not for free, but at a highly discounted rate. So we have the card game, Where in Time is Carmen San Diego, but they're all a bunch of. They're all Where in Time is Carmen San Diego. And they're about two to six players each. And I think a lot of them are like trivia about geography. Sometimes there's a crook involved, but it's just like a they've got like junior detective editions, and they have an adaptation of Where in Space is Carmen San Diego. Oh my God. It's a card game as well. But that's all of the games that I have and everything that I have on Carmen San Diego. I mean, it's just amazing the kind of money they made off of this franchise
3: and the fact that they're still, you know, they've rebooted it over at Netflix, like it just keeps going. And even in the 90s, I, there were like there was like an animated Carmen San Diego show on like Fox Kids or something. Mm-hmm. And I just yeah, it's amazing like how anyone knew about Carmen. I just like yeah, it was so ubiquitous and like uh, these days like I just don't know if there's any kind of character in a game or computer game of any sort that like for kids of, of a certain age is that popular like for little kids there's plenty of characters but for like to have had the hold that it had on kids from like eight nine ten years old still is is pretty incredible
2: and also to be something that parents didn't hate
3: right that wasn't obnoxious because there's a lot of kids stuff that's obnoxious um yeah can't say enough good things love love it we salute a you know grifting queen who continues to
2: <laughs> stylish grifting time. queen with her with her vile uh, rogues gallery of crooks and scammers
3: i mean she took an island of misfit toys and made them into a crime a, an international crime making machine it's a uh, it's truly an accomplishment for a woman who's transcended the world time and space um <laughs> Next stop, the
2: Fast and Furious franchise.
3: Cannot wait, baby. And uh, on that note, I think we can uh, say goodbye to Carmen San Diego and say thank you to all of you wonderful listeners out there. Thank you for continuing to listen to our great podcast. Uh, you can find us anywhere you like to listen to podcasts. And if you happen to be on a, a site where it lets you give us a review and a rating, we always appreciate that. We read them and we take them to heart. Uh- <laughs> You can also, uh, if you enjoy our podcast so much that you want more content, well, we've got an option for you. You can be a patron of ours on Patreon. That's right. We have a Patreon. And for five bucks a month, you get an extra episode or piece of bonus content from us. So uh, we'll be putting something together um, in the next week or so. We're actually going to be watching a a documentary on Hulu about the 2000s. The name is Miss is. Is myst- like, I can't think of it right now. What was the name of this documentary? I think it's called
2: Queen Maker.
3: Queen Maker, yes. About like the gossip society scene of New York in the 2000s. We cannot wait to watch it and we cannot wait to talk about it.
2: It ties back to one of our older episodes about It Curls because they yes. they talked to Tinsley Mortimer, they talked to a couple yes. of people that we had previously talked about on the podcast.
3: Yes. So we're very excited to watch and talk about that. So if that interests you and our bonus episodes on Indie Sleaze or the Titanic miniseries that came out a year before the blockbuster film, uh, and you want to hear more, head on over to the patreon.com slash old millennials pod. Additionally, we are on social media. So you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at the old millennials pod and individually on Twitter. I am at Emily A. (laughs) i
2: I'm at Mark. She wrote.
3: And until next time, we say bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen,